Um, today for on Mother's Day, it just kind of wound up this way. I was actually going to preach on this passage of scripture last week, um, and but then I thought it would be relevant to share about Greece, and I thought people would want to hear about Greece, and so decided to do that instead. Um, and so it just so happens that this passage lands on Leviticus 24 uh, on today. And so it's Mother's Day, and today I really wanted to focus primarily on speaking to your kids, okay? And so I know that the last few years, you know, for some of you guys who are younger, you have been used to being here and coloring or whatever it might be. I really want to encourage you guys, and parents feel free to pinch, um, to try to focus on what I'm saying today, even though I know that, you know, normally you don't talk about Leviticus with children, but I hope that you guys can bear with me. My sister, who actually happens to be here this week, a couple years ago, we got in this conversation about a book that came out about 13 years ago now, and it's called Guyland, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. Guyland, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. It came out in 2008, actually, and the book covers um, the culture of young men transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. That's what the book is about. It's a basically um, a sociologist doing research and unpacking the culture that surrounds boys to men. Not the, not the, not the band, guys, all right? I, there's not a trash can out here that, you know, me and Caleb are going to go sing around later or something like that. Um, no, boys to men, that transition into adulthood. And so after a bunch of research, interviewing um, men and young men, ages 16 to 26 primarily, the author observed a trend that kind of gave him pause. And this was the trend that he observed. In 1960, 70% of American men by the age of 30 had finished their education, gotten a job, found a partner, and maybe started a family. They had started work. By 2008, that number was less than 30%, okay? Guess what? 13 years later, it's even lower. It's gotten far worse. And when he looked at why this is the case, his research revealed, and there's lots of other studies on this now that it's been, you know, a kind of a hot topic. There's lots of other studies that enforce that young men especially are reluctant to grow up because they see grown-up life, close, um, quotes, as a loss. They prefer to stay forever young, like the Mel Gibson movie, and avoid the responsibilities, and I'm quoting, of adulthood, such as relationships, family, jobs, and, quote, other, new, other nuisances of adult life. Okay? And so the younger generation saying they don't want to grow up, they want to be a Toys R Us kid, because they want to avoid the, the nuisances of adult life, such as relationships, family, and jobs. Now, you may say, man, young men, all you young dudes, this is a problem. But it's gotten worse, and what we see now 13 years later is it's not just young men who feel this way. Matter of fact, I don't know if you knew this, but I just saw an article about it yesterday that the birth rate in the United States is officially below one, which means that our population is now in decline. 
people aren't having kids anymore. They're not getting married anymore. They are not going through this process of what we would say the classic example of growing up. And so why do I share all of this? Well, the design of life is to grow up into maturity. Um, I'd, unless you have some kind of medical issue, and in which case I'm not trying to poke fun, you don't still drink from a baby bottle, right? And your mom doesn't cut up your steak and feed it to you. You don't wear a diaper, right? When you do those things as an adult, it's because you have some kind of medical condition. It's not just because, you know, you don't feel like it and you're, and, you know, you're just, you want your mommy. But there seems to be a cultural problem in the West especially that people don't want to grow up. I don't, maybe some of you guys have watched these Netflix shows where they take, they're kind of like historical fictions, you know what I mean, where it's like events that could have happened. Um, you know, like uh, whether it's on Vikings or settlers or the Revolutionary War. And when Gene and I watch these shows, our, our common reaction is people were a lot tougher back then. <laughs> That's like our common reaction is people were a lot tougher back then than they are today. Today, people don't want to grow up and work hard. They don't want to grow up and start a family. They don't want to grow up and take responsibility. Now, spiritually, this is not a new thing, just so you know. Matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author, who never actually reveals who he is, he writes this in chapter 5. You have been believers for so long now that you ought to be teaching other people. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. I heard Francis Chan, Pastor Francis Chan, teach on this one time, and he summed that up by saying, you suck. You're like babies who need milk. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and does not know what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So what is the author of Hebrews saying? He's talking to a church of, of adults and, and young people, and he's saying, by now you ought to be spiritually mature because you've been Christian for 20 years. And he says, instead, you're still acting like a baby. You're acting like a baby where someone's got to come with the bottle and give you a little milky milky and put tap you on the head and give you a nap and kiss you on the forehead and rock you to sleep. And so today, um, on behalf of your moms, I want to talk to you young people about taking ownership of your faith. That's what today's message is all about. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light, me, light may be kept burning regularly, or it might say continually in your translation. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. See, I told you it was about young people. That was a joke. So here's the deal. So the, the tabernacle always faced east. The, the, like the entrance to the tabernacle was to the east. And you would go into the tabernacle, into that holy place, not the holy, holy place, but the holy place. And on the left, there would be a pure gold lampstand. 
and uh, on the right there would be a table which would hold the bread of the presence. So in Exodus, if you go and cross-reference, this pure gold lampstand was shaped like a tree, okay? And then it had a bunch of branches coming off of it, and then in each branch there was a flowering blossom made of gold, and then it would hold um, a lamp. It would hold oil to light this, this candle, as it were. And these, this tree with the branches and the flowers, what does this remind you of? Somebody just shouted out. What's the first reference to a tree in the Bible? All right, it's supposed to remind you of Eden, right? It's supposed to remind you of the, of the Garden of Eden. And so there's this tree with these branches and these flowers, and it's designed to make you think back to the Garden of Eden because who was in the Garden of Eden? God, right? So God's presence was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And so, but practically speaking, this lamp, if we can call it that, um, held uh, these wicks and it provided light for the holy place. Now, it says in this passage, it says the olive oil was pure olive oil. Now, what that means is that it was clear. It wasn't mixed with any spices. This isn't like olive oil for cooking with garlic in it. You know, this is pure olive oil. And to get pure olive oil, it has to be pressed instead of crushed. Now, what's the difference between those two things? Crushing is if you're doing like a commercial, um, you're kind of getting olive oil through commercial means. You put a bunch of olives in and you're crushing it with the millstone and so the, the oil is running out. Whereas pressing, you're doing it by hand. So it's a lot more time consuming. Now the reason you do it by hand is so throughout the process you can pour off the impurities so the oil you're left with is very high quality. It's the, it's the highest quality oil that you can have. Um, it's being used for the king of kings, and it's being used in his dwelling place, in his, his bedroom, so to say, in the tabernacle. So the olive oil is clear. Now, this oil was used for a very specific purpose. It was used to keep these lamps lit continuously or regularly. Now, two weeks ago, Bratton unpacked the purpose of festivals in Leviticus chapter 23. And so on the heels of that passage, one of the things that we should think about is this had to happen even during the festivals. And so while everybody else was having a blast building their little, um, you know, booth out of sticks and, and partying with their family, you know, poor Fred, he got stuck at the tabernacle and he had to make sure the lamps were lit, okay? The point is that there was no vacation from these responsibilities. There was always, um, someone always had to make sure the lamps were lit continuously. There always was someone working in the tabernacle, even if a major holiday is going on. You could have a whole separate sermon just talking about the fact that you don't take a, vaca a vacation from Jesus, okay? So just because you go out of town for a week and a half doesn't mean you change who you are, all right? Um, the light, the whole point of this, though, is that the light represents the presence of the Lord within the tent. So the priests keep the lamps burning. Why? So Jesus doesn't leave because he's afraid of the dark? No, of course not. They keep the lamps burning not to maintain his presence, but to what? To acknowledge it. So because they're acknowledging that God's presence dwells within this tabernacle, the lamps are lit all the time because they're making sure that the king always has a light on, so to say. 
And so they're, they're acknowledging God lives here, God dwells here, and we as his people are attentive to his needs, and so we make sure that the king always has a light on in his dwelling place. That's the whole point of these lampstand, of this lampstand. You guys following me so far? Okay, verse 5. You shall take fine flour and you shall bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. So remember I said that the lampstand is on the left, the table is on the right, gold table. It's about 36 inches by 18 inches, and it's got the bread stacked on it. Verse 7, and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron, who's the high priest, shall arrange it before the Lord. He puts the bread out. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. All right. So daily, they're making sure, moment by moment, they're making sure the lampstand is lit and it's never going out, all right? And then once a week on the Sabbath, um, what happens is they come out and they take fresh bread and they put the bread on the, on the table and then they take the old bread. And the old bread is for the priests to eat, for Aaron and his kin to eat. Um, and if you say, well, the bread's going to be bad in a week, these are like matzahs, right? And so they're going to last more than a week. And so, um, you, that's what's going on with the table. So because the table is in the Lord's dwelling place before the Lord's presence, the bread is called the bread of the presence. That's where that name is called. It's not because the Lord is inside the bread, like hiding out. It's because the bread is in his presence. And so the, the Israelites set fresh bread before the Lord weekly, acknowledging, again, like the lampstand, they're acknowledging God lives here, and I'm going to make sure he's got bread. Okay? Now, the word here for loaves, it's the same word um, that was used for bread in Leviticus chapter 2, which probably most of you guys don't remember, but you got your scripture journals. You can flip back. But the idea is that it's a flat loaf, that could be stacked, like think like a Frisbee, okay? Now, this is important because the table is small, and at, what was it, two-tenths of an ephah in each loaf? Anybody want to guess how much these loaves of bread weighed? They're five and a half pounds or something like that, right? So this isn't like, it's not a matzah, all right? This is a big loaf of bread, and they're stacked here. And then the frankincense is either near it or on it. No one's really sure. But this is to emphasize, according to Leviticus chapter 2, that this is a memorial portion. Now, the memorial portion, if you recall, was uh, something that you gave to the Lord, and you're saying to God, remember us. Remember your covenant Remember your promises. Remember what you said you would do. Remember what you said you would do for us and remember who we are. And so they would give a memorial portion, not for forgiveness of sin, but to say, God, please remember us. And that's why it says that the memorial portion was from the people of Israel. And so they would bring these loaves, 12 loaves, one for each tribe, and they would put them on the bread. And it was a way of saying to the Lord, God, Remember your covenant, and please be faithful to the tribe of Judah. 
God, remember your covenant and be faithful to the tribe of Benjamin, and so on and so forth, according to the 12 tribes. And so this is underscored in verse 8, where it says that this is a covenant, right? They're saying, God, please remember your covenant. Now, if you look at previous passages, which we don't have time to unpack now, in the Old Testament, when a covenant, it's like a promise, it's God's promissory language in the Bible. It's a relational promise that God makes. When you look at God's promissory language in the Bible, it's often celebrated with a meal, right? When Abraham, uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham, God makes him some bread. Um, and then ultimately we see this in the Last Supper, that Jesus says, this is the new covenant meal and then they, what do they do? They drink wine and they break bread. And so all of this is to remember God has made a promise. God has made a promise. God has made a promise. And they're not just trying to remember it themselves. They're saying, God, remember your promise. And so there's this constant intercession on behalf of the tribes of Israel. God, please remember your promises because that's all we have, God. If we don't have your promises, we don't have anything. And then at the end of the week, after they bring out the fresh bread, the priests eat this bread as representatives, so to say, of the people, a way of celebrating and we saying, and we remember the covenant today. We ask that you do as well, God. Alrighty. So what are these passages all about? Now, by the way, we're not going to do the rest of Leviticus 24. I know you guys were really hoping, moms, you were like, you were like, I really hope Bill unpacks eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth on Mother's Day. Um. But we will talk about those things in the podcast, okay? And so we'll go through that a little bit in the podcast. I only want to talk about these verses. So what are these verses all about? Okay? So my neighbors recently went out of town. They have like a, um, a camper that they tow, okay? And they went out of town, I don't know, for like a month or something like that. And as is normally the case, when they go out of town, they always ask us to like water some plants, keep an eye on things, you know, make sure a tree doesn't fall on their house, that kind of stuff, right? Which happened once, okay? Um, now, my neighbor is a real methodical guy. Like, he's a real methodical guy. He has a Toyota 4Runner that's like from the early 90s, and it looks in better shape than, than my truck, okay? I mean, it just is, he's real methodical. And one of the things he does is he always turns the water off in his house. Like he goes into the crawl space, turns the water off, even when it's not going to freeze. Because one time they had a pipe burst and it just was going. And so now to be safe, he turns the water off. Nobody's home, right? Lights are off. The water is off. Everything's locked up tight, except for your weird neighbor who's sneaking in to water your aloe plants. But I got to bring my own water, right? <laughs> because the water is off. All right? This is a true story. <laughs> All of this is true. <laughs> now, what's the point here? Lights off. Water off. Everything locked up tight. Who's home? Nobody. But if I go in there and there's candles on the table and there's some fresh bread on the table, what's my immediate thought? Somebody's home. That's the point. See, these symbols and rituals are to remind the people that the Lord's presence is before you. He is home. There's fresh bread on the table. The lamp is lit. The attendant, the, the, like the, the, the steward of the tabernacle is there. 
God is in your midst. The king is home. God is with you. He remembers his covenant, as you can see as you look at the bread, which is made with the salt of the covenant, which is a perpetual reminder. We talked about that in Leviticus chapter 2. And so the idea here is because God is always before you, acknowledge him, be attentive to him, serve him, worship him, honor him. He remembers the covenant. You remember it as well. So that's kind of the whole point here. So if you go through the previous passages, this is like the, the annual convocations, and then these are the daily and weekly things which the Hebrew people had to do. So what does this mean for us? Well, in the Bible, and this is where, for you young people, if you've been kind of zoning out, this is where I really want to try, you to, try to get you to focus in on what I'm saying. In the Bible, light always represents God's presence, right? First thing God says, let there be light. When he brings them out of Egypt, he brings them out as a pillar of fire before them. When he gives them in, in Exodus and he gives them the instructions for the, he appears to Moses as what? A burning bush, okay? He, he goes and he tells them how to build the tabernacle and there's going to be these lampstands, right? In Isaiah, when it's predicting the Messiah, it says that the people who sat in darkness will see a great light, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. John talks about Jesus as the light of the world. This, this idea of God's presence is, is bookended from cover to cover. Even the end of the book of Revelation, it says there will be no sun in the new Jerusalem because God himself will be what? The light. He's the light of the nations. This is the presence of God represented by light. Well, when you become a follower of Jesus, not just that you know about Jesus in your head, but when you become a follower of Jesus in your heart, God fills you immediately. He indwells you, indwells within you his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit moves into your soul. It's, it's brought to life, and God puts his light inside you because you are filled at, with the presence of God that the scriptures make it quite clear that there is no temple anymore physically, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's Holy Spirit, his presence lives in you because the Holy Spirit is the presence of God living within us. And Paul goes as far as saying the fullness of the Godhead bodily lives within us. He doesn't live in a church building. He doesn't live in a physical temple. He lives in his people. Now, if you have come to trust in Jesus, not just know about him, but if you have come to place your faith in him, to surrender to him, then he lives within you. Then he lives within you. Now, I underscore that because there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. All right? I know about, fill in your favorite or most hated political figure, right? I know about but I don't know him, right? I don't know him actually. I know about the Queen of England, but I don't know her. We don't hang out. Like, I'm not going to trust her with my life, right? First of all, she's super old. Like, she's not going to, she's going to help me in a bar fight situation? Like, what's going on? Okay? And so, I don't know why I'm getting in a fight in a bar, Gina, because we're in a bar. <laughs> So the point is knowing about someone is different from knowing someone, 
right? And so if you don't just know about Jesus, but you truly know him, then he lives within you. That's the point. But if you only know about him, that's what we call Sunday school theology. Yeah, you can tell the stories. Yeah, you grew up in church. If you say things like, well, I've always been a Christian. Ah, that's a flag for me. When people say things like that, I've always been a Christian. Well, it doesn't work that way because you're born an object of wrath, okay? And so just because you know about him doesn't mean you actually know him. If you know about him but aren't familiar with him, if you know about him but haven't placed your faith in him, if you know about him but haven't trusted in him, if you know the stories from the scriptures but you don't actually are not relying on Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins, he doesn't live within you. He might live within your spouse. He might live within your family. He might live within your parents. But he doesn't live within you. Because knowing about Christ doesn't save you from anything. Trusting in Christ, however, does. That's what happens when the Spirit brings our heart to life. And so I want to read Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Remember what light represents. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the, flat, the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, and as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, There will not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the, the groom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the others came along and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Not I didn't, not I used to know you, but then you messed up with the lamps. He says, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the hour nor the day. So here's a bridal party, and they're waiting for that big day. They're waiting for the groom to arrive. They don't know when he's going to be there. Okay, this is representing the return of Jesus. And those who have enough light, those who have oil, they're prepared. Those who don't have oil are not prepared. Those who have the presence of God are prepared. Those who have the presence of God are saved. Those who do not have the presence of God aren't prepared. They stand condemned already. So what's the point? What am I getting at here with Leviticus 24 and Matthew 25? Because every time I tried to pray through this passage, this was the only passage I, I thought about. I felt like God wanted me to speak on it as a parallel passage. And I think this is the point. And this is what I want you kids, you spouses, I want you guys to know this. 
my oil is for me. It's not for you. Your mom's relationship with Jesus, it's not yours. I have my relationship with Jesus, and you can benefit from it because you listen to what the Lord has said to me, and then I'm going to share it with you. But at the end of the day, you're not going to stand before the Lord and say, well, I know Bill. It's not going to matter. What's going to matter is if you have the presence of the Lord living within you. I can show you Jesus, but his presence in me is not saving for you. The Lord's presence in you doesn't overflow to another for their salvation like osmosis. That's not the way it works. The point is this. There's no salvation by association. And that's something that I think so many Americans need to know. Kids aren't saved because of their parents' beliefs. A husband isn't saved because of his wife's relationship with God. Each individual in this room needs to acknowledge and accept the light of Jesus Christ. The point is that nobody else's faith will save you. You need faith personally. That's what it means. So what must we do then to be saved? Well, nothing. Simply believe in faith, surrender, trust in the finished work of Jesus. And this is what Jesus did. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus proclaims to us, that you were born an object of wrath. In other words, that means destined for punishment eternally. You were born separated from God. Your separation is evidenced by all of the wrong sinful decisions that you have made, do make, will make. But it's also evidenced by your wicked nature, which innately is self-loving and God-loathing. No good effort is going to make you right with God. No church attendance is going to make you right with God. No awesome mom or dad who loves Jesus is going to make you right with God. No self-help work is going to make you right with God. You can't save yourself because, frankly, you're the reason you're in this mess. You need to be rescued from yourself. But Jesus came to earth to receive your punishment on the cross. He came to earth to be your rescuer. He died so that you could be forgiven. He died as a punishment for your sins. He was raised from the dead so that you could live forever. He became the first of a new humanity, a spiritual humanity. He sent his Holy Spirit so that you would have the power to follow him as king. And he invites you to follow him. But listen to me. Hearing the call isn't the same thing as responding to the call. Sometimes we confuse those two things. Just because you can explain the gospel doesn't mean you have responded to the gospel. You personally need to decide to trust in Jesus and follow him. Your mom's faith can't save you. Your dad's faith can't save you. Your spouse's faith can't save you. If this is a switch, a flip situation, your kid's faith can't save you. Your friend, you need to decide to grow in your faith. You need to hear. You need to obey. 
you need to walk with Jesus because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I call them and they come running. And so this is what I would say to, to you. If you're here today and you know about Jesus, but you have never actually decided to follow him for yourself, you have questions, you have concerns, don't leave until you talk with us, right? Kids, come talk with us. It's your decision. It's not your parents' decision, though you can talk to your parents, but it needs to be a decision that you make, not the decision your parents make for you and then project onto you. Parents, stop telling your children, well, you prayed a prayer 30 years ago, so I think your faith is probably real. When you're changed by Jesus, you're changed. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those in this room who think that they are believers but are not. Lord, and we are sure that there are people here, people who know the answers, who can explain Bible stories, who can recount these things because they grew up in the church, but they are not actually part of your church because they have not been brought to life. But today is the is a day, Lord, for them to respond. And so, God, we thank you that you say, come as you are. You don't say, get cleaned up and figure it out, but you say, come as you are. Come and see. I pray that today there would be those who desire to surrender to Jesus, those who desire to follow him. I pray, God, that you would draw people near. And, Lord, I pray that if it be your will, we would have the privilege of praying with them today. So, Lord, we thank you for your amazing work of grace and your call on each of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.